Hello, and welcome to Field Notes, the weekly podcast of the Military Fellowship Center in Jacksonville, North Carolina, serving Marines stationed at Cap Lejeune and surrounding areas. Military Fellowship Center is a ministry of Military Evangelism Incorporated. Our speaker and host for the program is Dave Mason, the General Director of Military Evangelism and the Field Director at Jacksonville. Visit us on the web at militaryfellowshipministry.com or email us at militaryfellowshipctr at gmail.com. Now, here's Dave Mason. Welcome back to Field Notes. I'm Dave Mason, and I've got a little friend, a bird, tweeting just outside the door today. So if you hear him, I apologize for that. We're going to finish up John chapter 2 today, and we're going to look at two separate stories, but they tie together because they give us an indication of what Jesus is trying to teach us here. The title of the sermon today is 18 Inches to Salvation. So let's start in John chapter 2, verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Help us to understand now in Jesus' name. Amen. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he go into the temple and overturn these tables and let loose all the animals and all this sort of thing? It wasn't because the service, it was because the service these money changers were doing was being done in the wrong way. Not that what they were doing was wrong. There was nothing wrong with them selling merchandise inside the temple. They were providing a service to those coming to Jerusalem for the, to, to uh, make their sacrifice and pay their temple tax. Um, there were those Jews at that time who weren't farmers. They didn't have sheep. Uh, they didn't have doves. They didn't have uh, access to goats and such. And, and so they had to, they had to buy those uh, animals in order to make their sacrifice. What Jesus was furious about was the price. These merchants were taking advantage of these folk and charging far more than they should have, and they were turning the house of God into a den of thievery. Here's the lesson we get from this. God believes in fair business practices. Proverbs 11.1 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. It's a picture of buying something in the market and the the uh, uh, say you want to buy a pound of uh, dried beans, and the fellow has a scale there. Only his scale is turned off so that you're actually getting three quarters of a pound instead of a full pound. God says a false balance is an abomination. A just weight is his delight. God believes that we should be fair in our business practices. And then the money changers, the other ones that he ran out, he ran out those that had that were selling the livestock, and he also turned returned the tables of the money changers. The money changers were those who were giving an exchange to those coming in outside of Jerusalem so that they could pay their temple tax in the local currency. So they were coming from uh, Samaria or from uh, Judea. They were coming from uh, Corinth. They were coming from all over different parts of Egypt, and they had their money from their area. 
but they wanted to pay their temple tax. Now, over in Exodus chapter 30, God said there was a certain sum all the children of Israel had to pay every year uh, as a uh, an offering unto the Lord. Uh, Exodus 20 and 13, Everyone that passes among them are numbered from 20 years old and above. They shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not get less. Give less than half a shekel when they give an offering unto the Lord. So every year the Jews had this half shekel uh temple tax that they had to pay on the day of atonement and jesus is watching these men exchange their roman coins their egyptian coins their syrian coins for the coin of jerusalem and they weren't getting a fair exchange it's if today on the stock market i mean in the money market uh, a uh, english pound uh it would cost me say a dollar 48 to to buy one english pound but instead, you were charging me a dollar seventy or a dollar eighty or two dollars to buy one English pound to exchange for that. That's what these money changers were doing. And Jesus said, "No, you don't do that. You don't make unjust money in the house of the Lord like that." And so he cleanses the temple of the money changers and the merchants. And the Jewish leaders see all this. Now they are not able to refute what he did was right. Their problem with Jesus was, by what right did he do these? How did he have the authority to do this? Was he a prophet? Was he the Messiah? And they wanted sign proof. They wanted proof to their eyes, not to their hearts. They wanted proof to their eyes before them that Jesus' claims were true. And so here begins another theme in the Gospel of John, which is spiritual misunderstanding. So let's pick back up in our text in John 2.18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou us, seeing that thou doest these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou repair it up, rear it up in three days? Verse 21, But he spake of the temple of his body. You see, the Jews were looking for a sign. 1 Corinthians one twenty two, Paul writes, The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. They wanted proof before they would believe. Don't you meet people like that today? Well, I need proof before I'm going to believe in God. I need proof before I'm going to believe in Jesus. The problem with that is that when proof is given, men and women put more faith in the miracle than in the miracle maker. Now, these Jews had some right to ask for proof because they were the keepers of God's word, his temple, his ordinances. Romans 3.2 says, Unto the Jews were committed the oracles of God. So they had some right to ask for proof. But Jesus knew that a big miracle right there would not produce real faith. And that's why he didn't do a miracle for him, Because Jesus did not come to this earth to force men to believe him, to force men and women to follow him. He wants us to love him for who he is, not just for his works. His works were meant to draw us near so that our hearts would be quickened, made alive. He doesn't want us to just believe because we've seen miracles. He wants us to believe because we've fallen in love with who he is. He is the creator. So Jesus said, the only sign you're going to get the only sign you're going to get is a sign of my resurrection. That's the ultimate miracle. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it, raise it up. 
That's the ultimate miracle. But the men misunderstood. They thought he was talking about the temple. You know, he said, destroy this temple. He's talking about the temple of the body. They think he's talking about the actual temple. And the temple wasn't even finished yet. They wouldn't finish the temple until uh, AD 64, years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it would only stand for six years until it was destroyed. Six being the number of man. Kind of funny, like, way, isn't it? But it would only stand for six years, and then Titus would sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple, tear every single stone of it down. But no one that hated Jesus forgot these words of his. Matthew twenty six fifty nine. These words are used against him at trial. This man said he would tear the temple down. Matthew twenty seven and forty. These words were used to mock him on the cross. You said you could build the temple back up. Why don't you just take yourself down from that cross? You're that powerful. And so, the Jews wanted a sign. Jesus told them, "This is the sign you're going to get." And the reaction. Hmm. Well, here's the problem with what Jesus said. If he meant the temple, the actual temple, and if the Jews were reading him right, and he was actually talking about the temple, that would have meant the end of their religious system. And they couldn't have that. Because just like men and women do today, they loved the accoutrements of religion. They loved the 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 luxuries of faith they loved the building more than the builder we have to be careful that we don't place more emphasis on external righteousness than on internal holiness let me ask you a question if the church you're going to today lost its building it burnt down and the pastor announced next week we'll be meeting in the high school gymnasium just down the street how many in your church would show up? I'm trying, trying to be mean. Would you? Would you go to a storefront church? The pastor said, well, we've got a big enough basement in the in the parsonage. We'll just, well, the 40, 50 of us that are together, we'll squeeze in down there and we'll have church right there. Would you show up? Ask yourself the question, what's most important in your faith life? What's on the outside or what's on the inside? John 2.22, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So here's, a, here's an instance of delayed belief. You know, the Jews were asking for a sign, and nobody believed, not even the disciples. And that just shows us that many of us may believe part of Christ's claim, just enough to get saved, but not all of it. The disciples didn't fully understand or believe this statement of Jesus until after he was resurrected. Then they went, oh, he was talking about his body. That's right. They didn't believe until his resurrection. They didn't believe the scripture predicting his life as the Messiah. And they didn't believe his own words as he walked and talked on the earth. Folks, it is possible to have a knowledge of the truth and for it to do you no good. Pure truth can lay dormant in our minds for years without it becoming heart knowledge, without it becoming understanding. The quest for knowledge is great. I mean, the number of, of our children going to college today is 
exponentially higher than it was when I was in high school. I mean, it's like most kids are going to college today. My worry is they're not being taught critical thinking. They're just gaining knowledge. They're having stuff pushed into their brain. Some of it good, much of it bad. And they're not being taught how to critically think, how to how to process it, how to understand it, how to take that knowledge and apply it into their heart and make it understanding. John two twenty three. Now, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day. And many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Note John twenty four two twenty four though. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So we move from delayed belief to insufficient belief. Jesus turns over the tables, runs out the livestock. By what authority do you have to do this? What sign can you give us that you have the authority to do this? Tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it. We don't understand that. We've misunderstood it. But he stayed there. Because he did do miracles after this. After this, he was in the miracle-making business. He was healing blind people. He was raising up lame folks. He was doing many wonderful things, giving the deaf hearing. He was doing great things. And a lot of people were in Jerusalem for the Passover. And they saw these miracles that he was doing. And they believed. They believed. But they weren't saved. Because Jesus didn't believe in them. You know, it's about 18 inches from your brain to your heart. Somewhere in that area, depending on how tall you are. Let's just say 18 inches. And just like there's a difference between the head and the heart, there's a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. The difference is understanding and applying. Head knowledge is seeing something, believing it's true, Understanding it, that's great, I, I get it, but never applying it to your life. Having a knowledge that makes no real difference to you doesn't change you anyway. I watched the news tonight, saw the story about the robbery, don't know anybody involved in it. Doesn't make any difference to me. Eh, sad that something happened, but the, but then when you see that story and it's someone you know, it changes you. Head knowledge is just knowing things. Heart knowledge is making the knowledge your own, putting it to work, changing, perhaps, your views and beliefs based on that knowledge. That's heart knowledge. That's salvation knowledge. Salvation is heart knowledge. I go out and knock on the door or two, talk to people, Ask them if they know about Jesus. Yeah, we know about Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, absolutely. I believe in Jesus. And I mean, there are folks I've talked to who will say, I believe that he's the Son of God, that he's God in the flesh, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the grave on the third day. I believe all of that. And yet there's no doubt those folks are not saved. Because there's absolutely no transformation in their life. They're living just the same as they did before they said they believed that. They're living like everybody else. 
drinking, smoking, going around, running, doing this and that, acting like fools, never engaging in fellowship with God's people, never stepping foot in God's house, how can you say you're saved? How can you say you love Jesus when you don't love the things he left for you? Salvation is heart knowledge. It's not just knowing it up top in your head. It's knowing it deep in your heart. Romans 10.9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The wonderful thing about those two verses there is that you can take the word thou or you, depending on which version you're using, and just put your name in there. So let's put my name in there and see how it reads. That if Dave shall confess with Dave's mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in Dave's heart that God has raised him from the dead, Dave shall be saved. For with the heart, Dave believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, Dave's confession is made unto salvation. Hmm. That's salvation. It's knowing it, believing it, confessing it, living it. See, a lot of people saw mighty miracles in Jerusalem. Many, many people believed in his name, but most of those folks, if not all, were not saved. Verse 24 again, Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men. And needed not, verse 25, that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus did not believe these people were saved, because he knows whose hearts he has cleansed. You say, I believe I've been saved. My question for you is, does Jesus believe you've been saved? That's the real question. You see, it's a funny, you take the word believe in John, uh, John 2.23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name. Then you take the word believed in verse or the word commit in verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Do you know those two are the same word in the Greek? Exact same word. Many believed in his name. But Jesus did not believe in them. Did not commit himself unto them. Many committed themselves to Jesus in his name. But Jesus did not believe in them. Same word in John 3.16 which we'll get to in next week or the week after. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All the same word. That word means to trust. Place your faith in. Not just hear, but understand and apply. And that's the difference of salvation. A lot of folks say, hey, I believe these things about Jesus, but they haven't trusted him. These folks saw miracles and were unsaved believers. A lot of folks like to talk about this kind and gentle Jesus, so friendly, wonderful, just never harmed anybody. He accepts everybody. Real famous preacher this week came out and said, Jesus accepts everybody. No, he demonstrated his love for everybody, but he doesn't accept every say accept everybody's life style, everybody's belief system 
There's not many roads to heaven, folks. There's not many pathways to heaven. There's one. Don't get mad because there's only one. Be thankful. Be grateful. Praise God there is one way. Jesus says, this is the supposedly kind and gentle, wonderful Jesus who just loves everybody and accepts everybody and, and everybody gets to go to heaven, right? Listen to what he says in Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. <laughs> I never knew you. That's what Jesus is going to say to them. But I went to church every week. I gave money. I volunteered. I never knew you. You never let me into your heart. You see, folks, salvation is not a statement. It's not, well, you're 12 years old now. It's time for you to come forward to the church and receive Christ and become a Christian. That's not, no, 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 no. Salvation is not like that. It's not a statement you make. It's not a signature you put on a piece of paper. It's a step. Oliver B. Green used to say salvation is like an elevator. You can stand outside the elevator and say, I know who built this elevator. I know the man who, who maintains this elevator, does the maintenance work on this elevator. I peeked inside and I saw the sticker from the state that says they inspected this elevator. I believe with all my heart that this elevator will take me to the 20th floor. But until you step in, press the button, let the doors close, and feel that lift, you have not placed your faith in that elevator. I mean on that elevator. You've placed your faith in that elevator. Well, I have faith it'll do it. But you need to place your faith on that elevator. You don't just need to place your faith in Jesus, folks. You need to place your faith on Jesus. You need to step inside. You need to step inside. You need to press the button. You need to let the doors to this world close behind you. Let him envelop you. Let him lift you up. It is one thing to respond to a miracle. It is quite another to commit yourself to Jesus and continue in him. John 8.30 And he spoke these words and many believed on him. Then Jesus said to these Jews who believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I said this before on this podcast. There's a difference between being set free and being made free. Jesus said, the truth shall make you free. Then he goes on and says, and whosoever the Son makes free is free indeed. You are not set free by Jesus to do what you want. Because now you're saved. You're going to heaven. You get to play all the games you want to play. Do all the things you want to do. No, no, no. You are made free by Jesus Christ to serve him. But this thing about people not really fully believing in Jesus, that was standard in his ministry. There was a lot of people who surrounded him who were attracted by the flash of miracles. I mean, he fed 5,000, 4,000. He had thousands following him. He had to run away from them sometimes because he just needed to some, get some time alone. But most of them didn't stay with him. By the end, he just had 12 in an upper room. And then only one showed up at the crucifixion. Oh, by the time the end of his 40 days of resurrection ministry were done, he had almost 500 following him, but 
10, 15 days later, at the day of Pentecost, there were still only 120 in the upper room. The number who come in and go out, come in and go out. It's just like church attendance. It's high in the spring, low in the summer, because everybody's on vacation. High in the fall, because everybody's got their kids back in school. Low in the winter, because everybody's depressed. An interesting verse is John 6, 6, 6. There's a verse for you, John 6, 66. The 66th verse of John chapter 6. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus said some hard things. Talked about sin. Nobody wants to talk about sin anymore. Nobody wants to talk about, oh, we've got to blame everything but sin. We've got to blame everything but the person. Everybody's responsible but the person who did it. Sin. Jesus spoke on sin, and a lot of people said, "That's it. I'm go- I'm done. I'm not going to have anybody. I'm not going to have some crazy rabbi yelling at me, telling me what how bad I am." Well, you need somebody to tell you how bad you are. Everybody does. Everybody needs somebody to tell them they're crazy. And that's our problem today. We've got a lot of folks with head knowledge and not heart knowledge. So listen, what can you take away from this? Number one. I want to encourage you not to argue the gospel. Don't argue the gospel. Don't rant on Facebook. Don't say horrible, nasty things on Facebook about people who don't believe. Don't don't rail against this lobby or that lobby. If they will not believe, they must be one with love, not arguments. You will not win them with arguments. Men and women are convinced of their own self-righteousness. And so all we can do is point them to the truth. Pull at their hearts and pray. The knowledge we give them travels 18 inches from their head to their heart. Secondly, we need to make sure of our own salvation. Test your faith. Paul tells us to check yourself and see if you be in the faith. Work out your salvation of fear and trembling. Make sure you really are who you say you are. Nothing wrong with that. You should check yourself. Your belief in Christ must be intellectual. Yes, you have to understand some some specific things. But it also has to be of the heart. Jesus must have made a difference in your heart. I remember the story of an old uh, seminary preacher. I can't remember which one. But he said... He, he stood in, it was years after his retirement. He'd been a professor at the seminary for years, and he was in his mid to late 90s, and he was asked back for one last time to speak to the young uh, um, students at this seminary who were training to become pastors. And he stood up and said, Gentlemen, I've written commentaries, I've written books, I've spoken to thousands, I've studied the scripture for half a century, I've done all these things, and the most profound thing I can say to you is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's nothing wrong with having some intellectual understanding. But it's got to get into the heart. And it's got to be simple. It's got to be childlike faith. Third, don't commit yourself to anyone. Believe that the gospel must be given in every possible circumstance. Even to church members. Because you never know. So don't just say, well, I'm not going to bother with that person because I'm sure they're saved. Always sprinkle the gospel in. Always. You just never know. 
And then finally, trust the ability of the Word of God. Often we are self-defeating. We just don't think we can reach people. Well, look how hard it was for Jesus. Listen, trust the ability of the Word of God. I'll leave you with a story. Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was talking to a young preacher one time, and the young preacher said to him, said, Dr. Spurgeon, how come people get saved every time you preach? People don't get saved every time I preach. Dr. Spurgeon said, well, you don't expect people to get saved every time you preach, do you? The young man said, of course not. And he leaned into him and he goes, and that's why they don't. Trust in the ability of the word. Trust in the ability of Christ to do amazing things. You will see him do amazing things. These folks, they didn't believe. They thought they believed. They believed in the miracles and all that sort of stuff. But Jesus didn't commit himself to them. Next week, we're going to start with John chapter 3, verse 1. And the missing word, it's in the Greek. But there was a man, Nicodemus. God bless you. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, I'm Dave Mason. Thank you for joining us for Field Notes. If you have been blessed by the preaching and teaching you have heard, consider visiting our website at militaryfellowshipministry.com and click the Donate button. Any amount will be a great help to us as we continue to reach our men and women in the military with the gospel. Join us next week as we continue our study of God's Word. God bless you.